Well, we had a long-winded pastor saying welcome over there, so that's why I'm here. Plus, plus it doubled the time because they had to translate my English into Spanish. So, anyway, it's great to, to, great to be uh, in a church, as I was telling them. It's, it's one church, uh, but with a community with different languages, we have to have multiple churches reaching out. And so uh, we're, we're reaching out hand-in-hand to try to make a, a, a ministry into the community behind us. Uh, they're up about 32, which is up from 20, so they've already grown, uh, so it's, uh, it's a great, uh, great privilege. Well, you've had opportunity to sit for a few minutes. I know you're just saying, but let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We ought to honor God's Word by standing, so if, uh, if you can stand, stand as uh, we read the section of Scripture we'll be looking at this morning uh, in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation as we... Uh, hear uh, God's message through his son to the, to the uh, apostle John, to the angel, the messenger of the church um, in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he was holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power. And have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He overcomes. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we pray as we look in your word that you might speak into our lives, that we might understand it and hear it so that we might put it into practice. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people again said, amen. You may be seated. As we've said be, to you before, the word uh, amen really has the idea, this is true, let it be. And so we want that to be true of our lives as we hear the message of, uh, of Christ to a particular church in Asia Minor. You know, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Revelation, and sometimes when we take a break in a series, it, it seems like it's been so long since we were in this book. We really only took a couple Sundays. We had Palm Sunday as we uh, began uh, kind of Passion Week together, and the, the, the call for us was to be a people of prayer, and we encourage you to spend multiple hours uh, throughout the week praying for uh, your own life to be in tune with God's plan, and as well as praying that many people would hear about Jesus, not only here, but around the world. So we call this to, to, to pray, to be people of praise, and to be people prepared for what's coming next. And then uh, last Lord's Day on Easter Sunday, we just talked about the so what of Easter. Uh, Easter should be more than just one day in which we celebrate the, kind of the pinnacle of God's program, which was the empty tomb, the, the victory that was won. And, and so we need to recognize that, that we can know for sure that what we believe is true, that, that we, uh, we matter to God, that that our sins can be forgiven, and that we can be part of God's plan. And, and so now we look back and we say, okay, well, th- that was Jesus coming the first time. Well, let's look forward to him coming again. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. And we've said b- the basic of the book of Revelation is about what that word means. 
Revelation means unveiling or uncovering. And we've all seen um, ex- uh, or been in experiences where we're, what we're trying to look at, we can't see very clearly. And whether it's because there's some kind of veil over what we're trying to, to look at, or maybe we're in an automobile, and this is probably the most scariest time to, to drive, is, is when all of a sudden you're engulfed by, by fog. And, and you just cannot see the road very clearly. You can't see what's coming next. And so you, you'd like that, that, that fog to be dispensed and uncovered. And so you can, that what you're trying to see could be unveiled before you. Well, the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And as we think about this big book, there's a last book and there's a first book. The first book is the book of Genesis, which is the book about beginnings. And so we, we see God's plan unfolded or program started in the beginning or at least he is speaking about the beginning and and really it's a it's a pretty straightforward uh, plan as we think about this big book it begins with creation as far as our part of it where God brought us into life and this planet that was a null and void in terms of its being inhabited he created this world and then he put life on it and so creation began God's story but then we kind of messed that story up. We kind of, in a sense, threw the book in the gutter. And so there was the fall. And our sin, our rebellion against God, our saying no to God rather than yes to God, um, caused God's plan, even though he was not surprised by our response to his invitation of, of obeying him and trusting him, is after the creation, after the fall. Then we have a period of time that began after Genesis 3 until now in which God is restoring uh, not restoring, but he's reconciling or redeeming, buying back people into his own family. And so beginning with all that he did to lead up to this time with his covenant people Israel and all the sacrifices that, that gave, gave a picture of the sacrifice to come is that God's program was to, to clean up our mess, to put it plainly, to, to deal with the fall, the rebellion of man to God. And so Jesus went to the cross and rose again to give victory over death to, to bring um, pardon for our sins. But it's, it's not done yet. And so now we look forward to the next step, which is God's restoration plan, where he takes back all the things that are still, as the Bible says in Romans 8, groaning because we're, we're, we're not living in a perfect world where uh, the garden will be revisited, where God will put paradise here on earth and God will eternal plan will be lived out. And so that's basically what we have in God's word, the creation, the fall, the, the redemption or reconciliation of, of people to himself, and then finally the restoration. And so the book of Revelation is the unveiling of the last chapter. But as we think about it, it really has a two-pronged emphasis. One is unveiling who is coming and then what is coming. When Jesus came the first time, uh, m- most people missed it. They, they didn't understand. And then when he rose from the dead, God sent revival in the land and people came to know him in, in, a, in a relational way. But still, people see Jesus as the, as the suffering servant, as the one, in some people's mistaken mind, who martyred himself for the faith. But he, he truly chose to sacrifice himself so that we could have life. But when he comes again, he's going to be coming as king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to come as the mighty one, the one who will judge this entire a world in, in a holy way. And, and so as we think about the book of Revelation, it, it portrays Jesus so much more in terms of 
how he came the first time in terms of people being able to realize the power and might that was in this one. When people saw Jesus on the cross, they mocked him. Why, didn't, why don't you send 10,000 angels and rescue you from this cross if you're so mighty? When he comes again, there will be no, no mistaken idea how powerful he is. So it's the unveiling of Jesus. It's who is coming, but also what is coming. And that's what we're going to be seeing in the weeks to come. But let's look at what he has to say to us today. And this morning, basically I'm going to give you uh, just some simple points to, to hang your hat on in terms of what he says to a particular church. But even before I do that, let me just give you the one major point. What God was calling his people to back then and now is we are called to be faithful. And these words are encouraging words to be faithful. I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, you know, what is really required of servants of Christ or stewards of Christ? Well, just one thing. Be found faithful. Be found trustworthy. Be found as a person who can be counted on and a people that can be counted on. Uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge is known as a president that didn't say a whole lot, but when he did say something, people listened because he didn't always say a lot. Uh, this is what he says about life. He says, press on. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful individuals with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated fools. Persistence and determination alone are all-powerful. And then if you want a more simpler illustration, uh, remember those little toys in which, you know, they were kind of like a doll or some kind of figurine, and it was kind of like in a pyramid approach, and then there was like a rounded part of the, the bottom that was filled with sand, and you'd play with it, a little, little child would play with it, and sometimes youth would play with it, and sometimes parents would play with it. And you'd hit the doll, and the doll would fall over, and then it would do what? It'd bounce back up. And you go, man, this is kind of cool. So you'd hit it again, and it'd fall down, and it'd bounce right back up. And you go, wow, I wonder if this does it every time. So you keep hitting this thing, and it keeps going down, it keeps bouncing back. Keep hitting it, it keeps bouncing back. And that's the picture that God has for his people. Is no matter how many times you get hit down, make sure you what? Get up. Be faithful no matter what the challenges are before you. Be a person that can be counted on. Be a person that will always be there. Be a person that will get up when they get knocked down. And all these churches in Asia Minor had that challenge because their faith was on the line and it was not always the most popular thing to be is to be a follower of Jesus. And so they had a side where they're going to be faithful. And that wasn't always the case. And sometimes it was in subtle areas, just like it is today. And then sometimes it was in obvious ways. And whether, God is, whether this world or the evil one is tripping you up with the, the most minor of things in the opinion of others, uh, or whether it's in the obvious areas, we need to be found faithful. Remember the church at Ephesus? You know, it was, they were doing great things. In fact, everything was going right in that church except for one little minor thing. They had left their first, what? Love. Jesus wasn't the most important person in their life, and others, uh, other things or other people had crowded in. And then you have an example of a, of a really great church, though they probably didn't feel that great because they were a small church, and they were struggling church, and they were, being, they were filled uh, in an environment where they are being persecuted for their faith, 
And they thought probably nothing was really happening in a mighty way. But God says, no, you're, you're, the persecution in your life is causing your faith to be purified. So the, the Smyrna church was a suffering church. It was a great church because they didn't give in to the pressures on the outside or the inside. But then you had another church, and the church uh, of, uh, of both Pergamum and Thyatira, very, very parallel churches, they began, the first one was more, more of, a, of a, a compromising church. And they weren't very discerning. The things they should have known was right and wrong. They kind of, they kind of, kind of blinded that and they were deceived. And, and, and Jesus pleaded with them not to be a deceived church, but be a discerning church. And, and then you had the, the church of Thyatira. And, and it, this was a church that was, was uh, a church that had fallen into so much and and they knew better, and they still could not come to the point they could just say no to the things that were tempting them in this world. And then last week, it was, or a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the church of Sardis, and the only way to describe that church, it was a dead church. And it wasn't because they didn't have emotional enthusiasm, is that spiritually they were dead. Well, the church of Philadelphia turns to, and this becomes one of the churches that are a model example for churches then as well as churches today. And all those churches represented churches. There were more than seven churches in the first century, but they represented all the types of churches in that day. And just like those churches then were examples to the church in the first century, so too are they examples to the church in the 21st century. And and the things that that Jesus said to them is what he's saying to us. And the parts that apply to us, we need to take to heart. But this morning, what we want to do in terms of, of living out the challenge to be faithful like the church of Philadelphia is we're going to look at who is coming, what is praised, and what is promised. Why were they a faithful church? The reason they were a faithful church is they knew who they were being faithful to. And that's announced, in, again, as Jesus unveils himself to the, the church in these words. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He was holy, he was true, and who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So he, he gives himself an introduction. He gives them a self uh, look at who they knew he was. And really it is true. People uh, are only going to follow well when they follow a God that is worthy following. And, and in many ways... We can ask ourselves, well, who is this God that you're singing about? Who is this God you're praying to? Who is this God you're trying to serve? And so this church would become faithful. The reason they were faithful is because they knew who their God was and who their God is. Well, who is he? Familiar words. Who is coming? He who is holy. Now, this is a familiar term throughout the Bible describing God as holy. And how would you define that? Well, it means he is utterly separate from sin. He's, therefore, in his character, he's absolutely unblemished and flawless. Is that your picture of God? You know, some people debate the question, do you really, do you really believe that God is good in the midst of all the, the terrible things that happen? And, and, and our response to that, if we really know God, I not only believe that God is good, I believe God is perfect. The Bible says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Any, any evil that we see or experience in this world did not come from God. He is holy. He is separate from sin. 
I mean, do you know anyone in your life that is, that has, that is flawless, that's unblemished, that you can't point a finger about anything wrong in their life? There are people that admire, but we admire, but if we're up close to them, we know that they are not perfect, but God is perfect. And it's interesting, the Church of Philadelphia, they, they lived in a, uh, in a pass area. It was on a trade route, and so it was an important city, though it was not a particularly large city. But it was a city that often experienced the, the fruit of being on a fault line. They experienced earthquakes. And for a while, some of the people would not go back in the city after the earthquake had brought damage into their, their homes. And they lived in the suburbs, whatever you would call them, the outsides of the city. And it's almost kind of an oxymoron, or, or, or I don't know if oxymoron is the right word. It's, it's almost like a, uh, like a play on where they were living. That they believed in a God who was holy, that was out uh, without a fault, even though he lived on a fault. And, and when bad things happen on a, from an insurance perspective, we say that was an act of, of God, okay? But they lived on a fault that experienced the fruit of living on a fault line, and they had experienced the devastation of earthquakes, and yet they still believed in a God that was holy, perfect, and good. And let's be honest, sometimes it takes faith to believe that. When bad things happen to you, or the whole question, why do bad things happen to good people? We, 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 we struggle with the goodness of God. But when we are convinced that God is holy, without fault, without blemish, without any sinful or evil, dark part of who he is, th- then we believe that though things are wrong now, we can trust in a God who's going to make all things right in the future. So they believed that, and so they were faithful to God. But not only is God holy, but he's also true. And we, we talked about that on Sunday, but last Sunday. But God is true. And, and what that means is he's the opposite of, he is not the opposite of that which is true, which is false. He, he is not the false God. And we're going to be seeing in the book of Revelation, there is going to be a coming, a Christ, who is not the true Christ, but he's going to be a what kind of a Christ? A false Christ or an anti-Christ one who is against the true Christ, who wants to live out and be instead of the true Christ. But that's not who Jesus is. He is the true Christ. This word could also be translated the genuine, real deal. He's the true Christ. He's the true Messiah. And both those words, interesting enough, are used in the Old Testament and New Testament to speak of the Messiah that is to come. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, I think it says that, that, that the one who is coming is going to be the Holy One of Israel. And of course, we know that Jesus said he was the true. But then it says he's the one who has the, the key of David, which is interesting because he wrote to a Gentile church that didn't have a whole lot of background in the Old Testament, and he, he made a reference to, to someone in the, the covenant people of God, Israel. He said he's got the key of David. And uh, have you ever been in a place where they have a, a lot of keys? In fact, uh, I didn't share this in the first service, but in our uh, key box at, at Grace Hills Church, we have, at, we have 61 different keys. Now, I, don't, I do not carry 61 keys on my key ring. Okay. But of the, of, of, of the 61 keys, there's one key that's called the master key, right? You've heard that, master key. And it's key number three. But, you know, even the master key doesn't open up everything. In fact, if I, if I by accident open, lock my doors, I can't get into my door without my with my master key. I have to go in the key box to get key number two to open the door. 
Well, what, what he was saying here is that, okay, I want you to know the one who's coming, he's got the key of David, and that key has the authority and right to open up any door. And, and, and as you looked at that, that was, that was the king's key. And it truly was the master key. And so they were faithful to one who had all authority. And isn't that what, isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples before he left? I want you to know I've got all authority. I'm giving it to you. You're going to be my representative. And so if we're going to be faithful to somebody, we want to be faithful to someone who's worthy to be faithful, and the one who is holy, the one who is true, who has the key to David. And then he says this, interesting enough, he says, uh, also he's the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I was just thinking that between the services, I was just thinking, uh, do, do you live in a house where someone opens the door and never what? closes it, and, and then you go close it, and then about 10 minutes later, you go back, and someone did what? They open it again, and you say, were you born in a barn? You know, you say that, look at it. Well, I don't want to heat the outside if it's cold outside, or if it's hot, hot outside. I don't want to air condition the outside. Man, keep that door shut. And, and, and no matter how much power I think I have in my home, I cannot keep people from opening the doors they should shut, and shutting the doors, they should open, right? I just can't, no matter what, no matter how many lectures I gave my children, no matter what, man, they kept, they kept doing that. Well, there is one, when he opens the door and wants to keep it open, it keeps open. And there is one who, when he wants a door shut, it's shut. And, and there's a lot of ways we could, we could talk about that, and part of this opening up the kingdom for, God, for people to enter into God's eternal plan. But it's also just the the opportunities he gives us, that those come from God. If you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 4, we have uh, Paul, who, who was kind of a door breaker. I mean, he's the kind of guy that he'd go anywhere, anytime, any way, at any moment. Um, and yet he realized that just because he was kind of a type A personality doesn't mean he could do anything he wanted. God had to be the, the agent by which he accomplished anything of eternal value. In Colossians 4, verse 2, it says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. So here's Paul at the end of his letter to Colossae, about ready to sign off and says, I, I want you praying for me. And then he says, uh, Here, here's what I want you to pray for, that God will open up to us a door for the word. Because he knows that when God opens a door as an opportunity to share the message of Christ, and he goes on, he says, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've been in prison, that I may speak it clear in the way I ought to speak. So as so we think about being faithful, we don't be faithful because God is holy, he's true, he's got authority as the key of David, but he's also the one who gives us the opportunity to be and do what God wants us to be and do. And we ought to be excited about that and, and, and realize that, that anything that we think is too big is not too big for God. And if there's some things he doesn't want us to do, he'll make that clear. But we, we want to be people looking for the opportunities God gives us. Now, um, next Lord's Day, we hope to maybe share a little bit more about the trip some of us went down to, to Tijuana, Mexico. But I, I was so excited on the way back. You know, I heard a little, I heard a story that I don't want to tell you too much about, but but when we were down there, we were painting and doing a lot of different things in terms of helping a school and, and a church that has a school there and related to, our, to our, our missionaries. And as we were going back, I heard this awesome story that Glenn and Fanny were in their service today. And, 
they had opportunity to, to knock, knock on a door to see if it was open. And they got in conversation with someone who was, who was working with us. And we would just assume that everyone there was, you know, knew Jesus and, and just asked the question, do you know for sure that you're going to spend uh, eternity in heaven? Do you know what, where you're going when you die? And then they had the opportunity, the person said no, and then the opportunity to, to share the gospel, and that person came to know Christ. And how did that happen? Because God opened up a door, and they were ready to go through that door and to be a vessel for God to touch a life for Jesus. And, and, and when that happens, you know, I just get excited even more so. I want to take advantage of more open doors. I want to see if some doors are open and, and talk to people. And, you know, I, like right before the service, I had an opportunity to invite someone to come to our new Spanish ministry. And so as we think about God calling his church, his people, very simply to be faithful, that's the message this morning. He wants us to be faithful, not to do what other people are, are supposed to do, but what we're supposed to do to, to reach the people that we're in contact with, to use our gifts and talents for him. He just wants us to be faithful and realize he's the one who has the authority. He's got the key of David that we have the right to do that. But he's got the power to open up doors to people's lives so that we can be used of him to be faithful. So that, that's who is coming. Man, why wouldn't we want to be a, a person that was faithful to a God who is holy and true and has authority, has, has, has the keys and who uh, opens and shuts? Well, then he goes on and then he says, well, let me give you some words of praise because they, they, were, they were struggling. They were, they were probably, uh, again, a small city, probably a small church, wondering what God was really doing. He said, let me, let me tell you what I see in your church. He says, verse 8, I know your deeds. And again, sometimes, you know, sometimes I wish God wasn't looking that closely. Have you, have you ever gone through that? God, I hope you, weren't, I hope you were paying attention to this, uh, this, this harsh word that came out of my mouth or this thing I did that I shouldn't have done or this thing I should have done that I didn't do. And I, I, I'm hoping he's not watching. But other times, I'm hoping he is watching. You, you, ever, you ever had a job where you're working really hard? And you say, I hope the boss is working, looking right now. I'm working really hard. And you're hoping God is looking. Well, God is. He knows when we're doing well. He says, I know your deeds. And behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. In other words, your ministry is going to go on because I, I, I've seen what you've been doing with it. And then he gives them these specific praises. The reason I'm, I'm excited about your deeds, your work, and, and giving you opportunities, because three things. One, you have a little power, you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And, and as we look at God's words, parts of God's word is just right there on the surface. All we have to do is read it and think about it for a moment. What, what, what was God excited about them about? And you're thinking, I could do that. I could do that. I could do that. It has nothing to do with gifts or talents or training. It's just, it's just being faithful. And he says, I'm praising you because you have a little power. Now, this word, this, this first compliment or praise is, is, uh, can be debated as far as what it might mean. Um, but I think most people will take it as I'm gonna, about to share with you this morning. In fact, I would probably put it this way, because you have enough power. Because the word little is not always used in a, a description of something that is ineffective or not sufficient or, or lacks something. And we normally use it that way, but it's not always used that way, and it's not always used that way in Scripture. For, for instance, um, how much leaven will leaven the whole lump? A little, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
Shake your heads like you're still listening to me. You ever heard that? You know, little leaven. It doesn't take a whole lot to, to totally penetrate something. Okay, well, how much faith are we supposed to have? We all believe that we ought to have faith. Everybody believes that? I mean, God likes us to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, how much faith do I need? And the Bible's, you know, Jesus said, well, you know, if you have the faith like a, a what kind of a seed? A mustard seed. How, how would you describe a mustard seed? It's very little, right? It's little. Okay. So as we, as we think about that, we need to understand that probably what he's saying here is he's saying, look at you, you've, you've got enough power because all you need is a, is a little of God's power. The same thing, all, you have enough faith, all you need is a little faith. Because the issue here is, is not how much faith you have or how big your faith is, it's how big your God is, right? My faith doesn't do anything. It's only God who does something. But when I trust him, the big God does big things. And all I need is a little faith to get that activated. And when I need God's strength, I don't need to be, you know, a, a massive weightlifter to move whatever he wants me to move. I just need to be tied to the person who's got the strength to move it. So he has enough. He says, you've got enough power. And, and isn't that what 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 is all about? You know, that God's power is perfected in weakness when i'm weak then i'm strong and you know that doesn't make a lot of sense other than all we need is a little of god's strength when we are really weak and we'll be able to do amazing things so you have you have enough power and he prays them for that and, and often sometimes the reason we don't do things is because, oh, i don't think i could do it. I, don't, I don't think i'm capable i don't think i'm able and god says well yeah if you if you just have a little power and sometimes we'll use that way. Have you, have you heard people say, uh, you got any experience? You go, yeah, I got a little experience. You know, if, you, if you've really had a lot of experience in whatever you're doing, you know, if uh, uh, you, you, uh, you work out much, yeah, I work out a little bit. You know, you guys that are all, you know, buffed out. You know, it, it, and so sometimes people will say that just because they're being humble and they go, yeah, if a little experience will go a long way. And then for this crowd, remember that old time commercial, you know, Brill Cream, how much will do it? A little dab will do it you know it's the gel will do it you don't have to put a lot of gel in just enough to keep that hair in place okay so uh, a little power you have enough power secondly you have kept my word you know, i gotta move on yeah you know, that's pretty straightforward isn't it what was he praising about you've taken my word of god and you've taken it seriously and you've and you've put it into practice and you long to 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 live it out again he's not talking about gifts and talents or training experiences that look at you've kept my word you know, Jesus said it this way, he who has my commandments, and you could say this, he who has my word and keeps it, I will love him and will disclose myself to him and will show that you love me. So God will praise us if we look at this word and say, I I'm doing my best to put it into practice. Is that doable? I mean, not perfectly, but I mean, we, we can all try to do that, right? We can rest on God's power. We can try to do his word. And by the way, uh, to do his word, we got to know it. You know, we got to spend time in it. I was reading a survey just this week, and they did a national survey about how much people read God's word, the Bible, and, and everybody thinks they, uh, that we should. In fact, they, it, interesting, they gave a question. They said, do you think our politicians would be, would be better politicians if they uh, read God's word? You know, vast majority of people, yeah, if people read the Bible who are politicians, they'd be more honest, and they'd be, you know, they'd try to have, they wouldn't be self-serving, so that was, they got a high percentage of that. And then they asked, well, do you think you ought to read more of God's Word? Yeah, 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 I ought to do that. 
And then, uh, then, they, uh, then they asked, well, just how much do you read God's Word? So they asked them, well, how do you read it daily? And they didn't say you had to read a long time. How do you read it daily? The answer was, only one out of seven in the survey said they read it daily. In other words, only 14% of the, of the people, uh, there's over, over 1,000 in the survey, and, which is a pretty large in terms of a, a type of, a, a, in some ways, a, a look at people's experience. One out of seven, 14% only do it, who do it once, uh, do at least read God's Word daily. And then they said, well, how many do it once a week? And, they, and then another one out of seven. So 14% do it only once a week. So 28% of people do it either daily or once a week. Then they asked them, well, how many of you do it once a month? And they said 48% people do it once a month. That's included the other 28%. So people say we ought to read God's Word, and yet they're not. But way over 60% said they ought to read a lot more than they do. Now, what, what do you think the, the amazing response back was? Well, why don't you read it more often? And they said, because I am too busy. Isn't that amazing? You know, it's all right to be busy, but if you're too busy, something's wrong. And if you're too busy to spend time in God's Word, then you need to eliminate something. Take something out that you really don't need to do and spend time in God's Word. So they kept God's Word, they had God's power, and then they said, you have not denied my name. And the Bible's pretty clear that, that Jesus was pretty excited about telling people, look it, if you're not going to confess me before men, then I'm not going to confess you before my Father. But if you'll confess me before men, then I'll confess you before my Father. And so they, were, they, they had a personal faith, they had a private faith, but they had a public faith. And that was true about the church of Philadelphia. So who's coming? He's the one who's holy, he's true, he has the key, he, he opens and shuts, he has, he has power. And what, what did he praise them about? He praised them about because they were people who uh, had enough power, they, they kept his word, and they uh, did not deny his name. Well, what, what was promising? Here's, here's the good news to them. He says, verse 10, because you have kept the word of my uh, we'll start verse uh, 9. Behold, I, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And you're thinking, what in the world is insane here? Well, let me, let me put it as simply as I could put it. What he promised them is that their message would change lives. And what I get out of this, he said, look it, I know you're struggling here and you're wondering, are we doing any good? We, we got these people around us and they're, they're, they say they're pretty religious. In fact, they even say they know God and they actually are from, you know, the covenant people of God, Israel. Uh, and they, they, they think they're from the synagogue of Yahweh, but they're not from the synagogue of Yahweh or Jehovah. They're from the synagogue of the Satan, the evil one. And they call them, themselves Jews, the people of God, but they aren't Jews. They are Jews ethnically, racially, but they're not true Jews because a true follower of God is not only, particularly in the Old Testament, not only one who is outward, but also one who is inward. Romans 2, 28 and 29, and, and also against Romans 9, 16. A, a true Jew is one inwardly, circumcised of the Spirit. And he said, I, I want you to know, these people who you think you're not making any impact on, <laughs> just wait, because there's going to come a time where they're going to keep looking at your fate, and they're going to come to you, and whether it was literally or figuratively, they're going to bow down and say, thank you so much that you told me about Jesus. And, and so we need to realize that, that God's word goes out, and it's powerful. Romans 1.16 says this, 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and so the message is, it's like on, on Friday in Tijuana, the message went out and a life got changed because of the power of the gospel and the message of Christ. And the message of believers serving other people. And, and I, I want to know and have what you have. So the promise is when we're faithful to Jesus, the message, our message, which is Jesus' message, will change lives. And ultimately, isn't that what Paul said in Philippians? That when Jesus comes, comes again, at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then secondly, he gives them another promise, verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, in other words, you've been faithful to my word and to the gospel and hanging in there, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is a key verse in so many different ways in terms of looking about what is to come. And I'm going to tell you my perspective on what this verse is saying and a couple reasons why I believe this. Again, these letters to the churches were given for the purpose of unveiling who is coming, but also what is coming. And, and they knew that, that, that Jesus and had said in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, and they also knew from particularly in the book of Daniel and some other places that there's going to come a time when God's wrath would come upon this earth, the hour of testing, not just part of the world, but the whole world. And he says, I want to know because you are faithful, and the, and the principle is all of God's people who are faithful and true Christians are faithful. I want you to know if you're truly part of my family, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you from this hour of tribulation or wrath or testing that's going to come on this earth. You know, the, the Bible says that, that God's people are not destined for the wrath of God. And he's going to rescue us from that. And I've got a couple references down there for you to look at. First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Uh, 4, 16 and, uh, and 18 talks about the, the rapture that is to come. And then five, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. And, and so I believe this is a promise to them and applies to all Christians at the time when Jesus comes. I'm going to keep you from this hour of testing that's come to this earth. It's not promising we're going to keep us from suffering. Christians suffer down throughout every century. But there's coming a time, as Jesus said, it's going to be unlike any time before or after when God's wrath will come on this earth. And I will take you out of, take you from this time. Which simply means you will kept from, be kept from the wrath to come. And then thirdly, you will be rewarded for, for your faithfulness. Now for those of you who have been teachers and, and those who have been in uh, positions where you, part of your responsibility is make people feel affirmed for what they do or what, you know, and they get motivated. And, and you remember the simplest things that teachers will do on a homework well done, they'll draw a face and they'll put what kind of face on it? A happy face, right? You did a good job. Whether it's little ways or big ways, you want people to, be re, to, to feel rewarded, not to build up their egos or have heads out to here, but you want them to, to, to feel like they're doing the right thing in the right way and for the right reasons, and they're, they're accomplishing, the, they're, they're moving ahead. And so God does it. That's the whole purpose of rewarding. He says in, in verse 12, he says this. Oh, sorry, in verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. Which has the idea of, you know, 
there, there's a variety of ways that sometimes people get rewarded for whatever they do, and, and sometimes there'll be facilities where they'll put plaques, you know, on, on certain parts of buildings, which kind of says how much they've done, maybe to get that building built, maybe it was money they, they, uh, they donated, or, or the amount of work they put in to make sure that happened, and, and they got recognition for it. Now, the recognition we get for anything here is, gonna, is just going to dissipate, it's going to be gone, but can you imagine that, that when we get to heaven, God says, hey, you're part of this this kingdom. You're a pillar for all that, that has happened. And, and then he goes on, he says this, and I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Now again, that's kind of a wordy way to say something very simple. Uh, some of you are sports fans and some of you wish that sports has never been invented, all right? But anyway, uh, if you've ever been to an athletic event, uh, most most athletes, when they're playing in the competition, they're wearing some kind of a jersey. And depending upon the philosophy of the, the owner of that particular team, they'll have their name on their back, or it might be vice versa, but on the front, they'll have the name of the what? Of the team. And sometimes they'll put the city of it, you know, but they'll, they'll have the, an emblem of the team. And fans often who want to identify with that team, they'll, they'll, wear, they'll wear the colors and the, the jerseys as well. And, and when we get to heaven, God says, you know when you get here? You're not going to just be some kind of name. You're wondering, well, am I really on the team? And, and, and when you try out for a team, you're just hoping you get a jersey. You just want a jersey so you're part of whatever team that is. He said, I want you to know that I'm going to put my name on you. And the city from which you're going to be worshiping me, the central part of the worship, Jerusalem, Holy One, and whatever it might be. And so God's going to reward us and make sure that we know that we're part of his eternal plan. And so then he ends with, again, the, the exhortation. Okay, church at Philadelphia, and he was speaking to some people who were being faithful. And let's be honest, he was also speaking to some of them within that church that probably were not being faithful. And he says, I, I want you to listen up. I want you to be faithful. Why? Because who is coming? And, and I want you to be faithful because I, I, I want you to know uh, you have examples in front of you that have been faithful. And then I also want you to be motivated because of what is promised. What is promised is that your message has eternal value. It will change lives. That, that, that I will keep you from the hour of, of my judgment upon this world. And I want you to know that you will be rewarded for your faithfulness. I was reading, reading about Roman soldiers that the, uh, probably the, 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 the empire that was so dominant in all of, of of human history was probably the Roman Empire. And, and there's many reasons for that, but one of them, it was their ability to, to mass armed forces that were, were so powerful as they would face an enemy. And they probably had su superior strategy and superior weapons of war, but they had, they had an unmatched loyalty to their commanders and their commander-in-chief. And I read in one account that when a soldier... Uh, who was challenged to be faithful, was found to be unfaithful, they would give that soldier an object lesson. They would, they would take off his little finger. So that every, every time he used his hands, he would be reminded that he had one, one primary responsibility, and that was to be faithful as a soldier. And so as we, as we look at the letter to the church of Philadelphia. The, the letter speaks to us about being faithful because the one we're being faithful to and the examples that have gone before us who were faithful. 
and the promises of what happens when we are faithful. And so that God would look at us at the end of our time with a word of praise, my good and what kind of servant? Faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, you call your people to be faithful. And Father, the reason we're called to be faithful is because you're the faithful one. And maybe this morning, just as it was true this last, last, last week, there's, there's someone here this morning that is not sure where they'll spend eternity. They're not sure that they'll spend their uh, life in heaven. And Father, we will not want them to leave this place without knowing how they can be sure. And it's as simple as understanding even what Revelation 3.20 speaks about. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and be with him and have fellowship or dine with him and he with me. So it's a matter of opening up our lives and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior, the forgiver of my sins. I want what you did on the cross for me to be applied to my account that I no longer face you on my own merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again on on my behalf. And Father, for us who have made that commitment, Father, we just really pray that this, this day and this week and the weeks to come, whatever time you allow us to live here, before you come or when our life is over, that we might be found faithful to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we stand this morning to sing, we invite...